where, where he is writing about the, the, the mass of uh, humanity who lead lives of quiet desperation. You know, so for, for all of those who are kind of clinically depressed or who have that kind of documented medical need for the use of psychedelics, you know, there's a, there, there, are, there are many more people who lead lives which lack lack a feeling of significance, which lack some of the kind of basic constituents of the exercise of, of political agency and autonomy, uh, fundamental self-belief and, and, and self-trust. For it, for example, and I and I, and I really do think that psychedelics can help enhance those those kind of proto political dimensions. Um, yet, where that then takes you, the macro level, uh, socially speaking, is much more is much more problematic to kind of envisage. But but I think I mean I do I do I do sincerely believe as a we have to we have to accept that the whole the whole political spectrum will become more uh, enlivened in, in that way. I'm Oshan, and welcome to the Musing Mind podcast. Psychedelics have been on my mind a lot lately. I wrote a kind of long-form state of the psychedelic renaissance piece for Vox a few months ago, and I've been having all sorts of conversations since, you know, looking at what this moment of psychedelic reintegration into society is doing well, what it's doing poorly, what it might be missing altogether. And today's conversation is with Oliver Davis, who is very much a scholar of precisely these aspects of psychedelics that I find to be both the most interesting and the most neglected from today's discourse around them. Oliver is a professor of French studies and director of graduate studies at the University of Warwick in the UK. He is a co-editor of an ongoing series in the journal Frontiers in Psychology on the psychedelic humanities, which is fascinating. He's at work on a book about the politics of psychedelics, and he's the author of a recent paper on the French artist Henri Michaud and his writings on psychedelics, which spanned many books, uh, which are going to serve as something of a guide for the conversation today. We get into things like what is lost in the potential of psychedelic experience when it's approached exclusively as a therapeutic tool to be used under highly regulated and controlled settings. We talk about Michaud's work, especially his turbulent view on psychedelics and creativity and kind of threading the needle between science and mysticism when it comes to making sense of these experiences. We talk about psychedelics and politics, which is something that I really like about Oliver's focus, where one of the most important implications of psychedelic experience is not what it can teach us about consciousness or the nature of the universe, though these are fascinating and worthy of study, but how it might help us rethink our social and economic worlds, right? How psychedelic experiences might help foment a more democratic form of politics. On the whole, I think that this kind of emerging field of the psychedelic humanities is super rich and increasingly important uh, as psychedelics continue this march into the mainstream. And Oliver is a wonderful guide through some of the questions that animate that field, right? Through some of the critiques it has of a purely biomedical paradigm, and also through Michaud's work, which is a lost and neglected but really rich map to the psychedelic experience, much more so, I think, as we'll hear, than Aldous Huxley's kind of famous 
mescaline trip report, The Doors of Perception, for example. Um, if you read Huxley, you might get the idea that psychedelics are just wonderful and incredible and positive. You take your dose and you have a few hours of revelatory ecstasy and insight where you see the universe as it truly is. But Michaud's study is full of turbulence, of discomfort, but also of revelation and insight. And, and the interplay between uncomfortable disruptions and unusual elevated insights is, is I think, a much more fitting guide than just the revelation alone for individual experience, um, and also for the coming decades of how society at large is going to metabolize psychedelics. If you enjoy the show, consider leaving a rating review on Apple Podcasts. You can also become a Patreon supporter. You can give one, two, three bucks a month, and that stability really helps in producing more episodes. You can find that at patreon.com slash Jarrow, or just follow links from the podcast page. You can find that at musingmind.org slash podcast. And that'll do it. Here's Oliver Davis. So, Oliver Davis, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much, Oshan, for the, for the opportunity to, to talk about some of my work on, on psychedelics. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of your endeavors is co-editing this series of articles published in, in the journal Frontiers of Psychology that all kind of re revolve this topic of the psychedelic humanities. And first, I'd actually like, like you to explain what that means, right? What are the psychedelic humanities? And then second, as my kind of underhanded way of weaving in some of your background and biography a little bit, I wonder if you could share how you came to be interested in this particular perspective, right? What was your road to the psychedelic humanities and, and what speaks to you in, in that space? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Two very good questions to, to start with. Um, yeah. So people are beginning to talk about the, the, the psychedelic humanities. There have been some, some really interesting institutional initiatives in, in this regard. I'm thinking uh, in particular of the, the founding of the laboratory for the, the psychedelic humities by uh, by Nick Langlitz at mm. the New School. Um, that, that's oh, that's a really, near me, right? I've heard about that. It is. It's a really exciting uh, development. Um, but I mean, the psychedelic humanities, even though we're just beginning to talk about them in those terms, I, I suppose one could say, you know, ever since historians started working on the history of, of, of psychedelics and anthropologists on, on, on the use of psychedelics in uh, Indigenous cultures, particularly, we've been doing the psychedelic humanities. We've just not been, you know, calling them the psychedelic humanities. So, but they are beginning to to co coalesce under that heading or, or, or label, and I think that's a that's a really uh, important moment, actually, because so much of the research, as you know, on on psychedelics uh, in the the, the so called psychedelic renaissance comes from comes from neuroscience and uh, neuropharmacology. And that's all. That's all great, um, but there is a real need, I think, for for the humanities to begin to engage with uh, the implications of, of of this research. How I came to them. So, I my interest uh, initially was not in in, in psychedelics. Um, I had an interest among among many other many other research interests in uh, psychoactive drugs more broadly. Uh, so, some of my early research was on. Uh, particularly on the use of uh, psychoactive drugs by uh, gay men in sexual subcultures and dance club cultures. Uh, so I really came to uh, to be interested in psychedelics through other kinds of of 
of drug research. Out of curiosity, what were what were those psychoactive drugs? Okay, uh, well, so in yeah, so in uh, in chemsex uh, cultures or uh, pharmacosexual cultures, as they as they're sometimes uh, called, so these would be a combination of drugs, uh, including uh, G uh, GHB, GBL, uh, methamphetamine, uh, methadrone, and others. Yeah, so different different kinds of drugs on on the kind of clubbing. The kind of clubbing dance culture side, of course, mm-hmm. ketamine, which is is now considered considered a psychedelic, although albeit not a kind of classical psychedelic, ecstasy, MDMA, and and you know the funny thing the funny thing is for me actually the interesting thing working as someone who's kind of been observing these these cultures partly within them, partly partly from the outside, um, you know, for for a couple of decades is that you know people were, were using some of these. Some of these drugs that are being discovered for uh, for medical therapeutic uses now in in dance clubs in the 1990s. So I think that's a kind of it's a sort of it's a kind of irony of of uh, of history that, that that intrigues me. Yeah. So you came through though these kind of really interesting kind of niches of broader psychoactive drugs in the club scene, and then how did you step from there into the particularly the psychedelic humanities? I'd started to. Um, hear about some of the research being done particularly by by david nutt and robin carhart harris um uh and i'd started reading some of that that work and that 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 intrigued me and i think i think the particular properties of psychedelics lend themselves to uh, investigation by scholars in in the humanities in perhaps in a more intensive way than 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 some of the other psychoactive drugs that uh, that 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 I've already mentioned. Yeah, that um, I've, this is I think a common story when that research started coming out, particularly from from David Nutt and Carhart Harris. That was uh, e- extremely intriguing research. I think it had a kind of a gravitational pull. It pulled a lot of folks into this into this yes. realm. Um, okay, so. The way that I came across your work was was this paper you published a few months ago on the French, you know, mid twentieth century poet and painter Henri Michaud, and that paper kind of weaves across a couple of topics that that I want to touch on today. You know, mainly what psychedelics can offer beyond their biomedical and therapeutic forms, and the political implications and even potentialities that they can stir up. I, I don't necessarily want to confine uh, the conversation to Michaud. You know, you yourself are at work on a book on the politics of psychedelics that goes well beyond him. Uh, but but I think he'll be a nice guide kind of as we make our way through the terrain. So let's start with Michaud. Um, you know, one of the literary touchstones that people use as a signpost in making sense of the psychedelic experience, especially early on, you know, was the British author and philosopher Aldous Huxley. Um, yeah. He took mescaline, he wrote The Doors of Perception, and, and that's still referenced to this day. Uh, you've argued that, that Michaud, who, who wrote a series of books on his mescaline experiences right around the same time as Huxley, actually produced a far kind of richer, more textured and, and interesting engagement with psychedelics, but for reasons of, of translation lag times and his being in France where there wasn't as much of a counterculture scene, Huxley became the kind of early literary emblem of, of psychedelic experiences. So... Let's turn to Michaud then. Who who was he, and and what about his writing on mescaline trips strikes you as so interesting, even as to kind of rival or, or surpass Huxley's? Sure. Yeah. So uh, Michaud was um, born in Belgium. So he was originally Belgian, 
he hated Belgium. He moved to Paris uh, in the 1920s. Uh, he frequented surrealist uh, milieu. Uh, he then traveled very extensively uh, before, before settling in Paris, uh, where uh, he produced um, works of literary criticism, uh, works of visual art, um, and, and, and works of literature and, and poetry. And he's really a kind of... Um, he's not so much studied now actually for his literary output but he is a kind of touchstone of kind of high modernism in in in, in France uh, my suggestion is is in 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 the paper that you um that you mentioned is is really that in in a sense his his engagement with 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 mescaline uh is is far richer far more extensive actually than than Huxley's. Uh, Huxley did it first, <laughs> just. Um, <laughs> that often but, means a lot, doesn't it? Uh, it, it often, yeah, it often, it often does. Uh, you know, Michel was was familiar with 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 Huxley's work, mm. but he was also uh, very much anchored in uh, French biomedical research on uh, psychedelics within psychiatry in 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 Paris at the time. So he was a close friend of uh, Jean Delay. Whom your listeners might 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 be familiar with as because uh, Delay is usually remembered as, as as the person who discovered the antipsychotic properties of chlorpromazine, but 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 Delay as uh, you know as re- researchers such as Zoe Dubus, uh, whose work is, is is fantastic, have have shown um, Delay was also very interested in in, in psychedelics um, too. So Michaud was a was a was a social acquaintance of of Delay's and a kind of um, so they inhabited this kind of shared uh, cultural and, and 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 intellectual milieu, and they kind of refer to each other in their papers and their and their books. Um, and I suppose one can sort of see Delay, the the the, the, the doublet or couplet of Delay and and Michaud, um, uh, a, a bit like the kind of couplet of hum- Humphrey Osmond and uh, and Aldous Huxley. Mm. For me, the, the, the kind of the interest in in in, in Michaud's uh, work on, on on mescaline and the reasons why it's kind of more significant, I think, than than, than Huxley's is the variety of its engagement and its transmedial quality. So the inclusion of works of visual art within the book, these kind of mm-hmm. mescaline drawings, these reconstructions, these visual reconstructions of uh, of the mescaline experience. It's not an easy read. <laughs> Huxley is Huxley is more um, is more digestible. Um, uh, Michaud's work is is much more it is much more difficult, I would mm-hmm. say. Um, but but I think it is a, it is a, it is a more substantial engagement with uh, with psychedelics and uh, yeah and and as you say, I mean, I think the reason it hasn't really been sort of taken up is mainly accident you know contingent reasons of accident to do with translation or the lack of translation uh at the right time for it to be so so the kind of the the first book miserable miracle miserable Mm. miracle um was translated kind of early enough but it's his kind of most pessimistic um appreciation The, the the later books are much more uh kind of enthusiastic and and much deeper really in their their embrace of 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 the mescaline experience, and am I am I correct in remembering that the first book, Miserable Miracle, was published first, but it took a while then for the second one to be published? There was a big lag between them. Uh, yeah, so um, 
Um, Miserable Miracle was published uh, by City Lights, by the, the San mm. Franciscan uh, countercultural publishing house uh, in, in English translation in 1963. So it was written in, the original was written, published in 1956. Mm, okay. So it was published in translation in, in, uh, in uh, 63. And then the second, uh, L'Infini Turbulent, The Turbulent in Infinity, which came out the year after in, in French in the original in 1957. Um, yeah, it didn't appear until English, in English until the mid 1970s. So, mm. you know, after the counterculture, essentially yeah. after the American counterculture. Well, that makes think- sense, right? Like if, if the first book that came out and that was around for, you know, the brunt of the American counterculture, uh, w- was not so hot on psychedelics. You can imagine that folks kind of, uh, folks, the, uh, the energy was high. Folks were excited and here, you know, it could be read as a, as a downer until you get to, uh, you know, the rest of it. Absolutely. And, the, and the, the, the funny thing is as well is that there is, so there's a second edition of the first book of, of Miserable Miracle that comes out in, in 1972 with a, with a, with a sort of um, a postface, which is entitled Addenda. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it basically Michaud kind of recants the, the most pessimistic dimensions of that book. Mm. Um, so yeah, the, the, the kind of the, the history of the publishing, the history of the publication of this series of works, I think has, has meant that, uh, meant that he wasn't just, he wasn't taken up in the way that, um, more vocal enthusiasts like, like, like Huxley were, which is, is a shame. And I'm trying, in a way the, the article is trying to say, well, look, hang on, there is also this, there is also this work too. Yeah, I mean, it's. Inter- I think this is a theme throughout Michaud's work, and we'll get into this when we talk about his view on on creativity. Mm. That there, it, it's a it's a longer process where there's kind of a, a gate, or you have to go uphill at the beginning. But if if you hang with the adversity and and stay through it, on the other side of that, you get a lot of this richness. But it's kind of like if you come to his work wanting the immediate, uh, interesting payoff, and you want the the big kind of rapturous you know take on psychedelics it doesn't hit you right off the bat you have to kind of work through the adversity through the disruptions and um we'll track that in his creativity because i think it it works perfect but i do wonder when i so for example when i think of huxley's doors of perception one of the the images or the ideas that has lingered with me through that was this idea you know he writes about the brain as a reducing valve that filters the, the you know huge stream of information a brain registers, uh, what Huxley called mind at large, into the measly trickle of what he calls the kind of consciousness that's useful for our survival on the surface of this particular planet. And so this, you know, this idea, which was then compressed into the reducing valve, which you know got caught on in a lot of popular media, a lot of books, things like this. Are there? I, I think it's difficult with Michaud because, as you say, it was richer, it was more varied, it was more textured. I don't think you can collapse it onto kind of singular ideas. And also, also it was transmedial. It was writing, it was painting. It was a lot of different kind of forms at play. But are there kind of themes that you've taken with you, kind of ideas of his that that stick out as kind of uh, graspable handles that point to the wider range of of the the terrain that he charted? I mean, one one of the things to say about um, yeah, I mean, I mean, Huxley's idea of the reducing valve comes from Henri Bergson, doesn't it? <laughs> Which is uh, an inter- it's an interesting kind of yeah, sort of transatlantic uh, uh, borrowing. Um, yeah, um, and, and I'd agree. I mean, uh, there is the kind of coefficient of adversity with with Michaud's work is 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 much higher than uh, than the, with with than with the really more accessible writing of. Uh, uh, of, of, of Huxley, I mean, I think 
I think it is that that kind of sense of the extended process through which Michaud as a, as a self-experimenting subject goes that is one of the most interesting features of the series. Uh, so, that, so the fact that he starts off with this kind of visceral, this visceral reaction against the masculine experience, which as he continues to experiment, and, you know, it's a, it's a strange kind of, it's actually a very interesting, I think, personality type, you know, that, that has, a, has, a, has a kind of bad experience and then decides instead of avoiding the experience right. to, 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 you know, to repeat it, to, to, to practice in a way the, the, against that coefficient of adversity. And then, uh, so, so, I mean, I think that there are kind of characteriological personality features of, of Michaud's that, that make him a, a far more engaging um, uh, experience over, over, the, over the volume. I think it's that sense of, of the way in which he moves from a, a visceral opposition to a kind of quasi-mystical, but still, it's not kind of fully-fledged mysticism. It's still, it's still uh, in a way, uh, kind of physicalist mysticism. Yeah, for, for me, one of the other things also that's interesting about... Uh, about about Michaud's work is, of course, he wasn't the first writer in in twentieth century France to look at to look at masculine. So there is the the precedent of of Alexandre Rouillet in the the nineteen twenties. He wasn't a literary writer at all. He was a a pharmacist and a kind of um, a kind of entrepreneur who 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 was producing this uh, this concoction pan peyotil. This this concoction made from a peyote cacti that he was cultivating um in france but but that's a very kind of that's a very kind of um mystical text actually that 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 that, that um, relates the use of peyote to central and southern american indigenous cultural usage and then there's of course there's antonin Artaud, uh his book les, les tarahumara um, which is all about his trip to mexico and his experience of peyote the peyote ritual with, with the Tarahumara tribes. And so, so Michel was writing after those two figures. And so he takes this resolutely different approach, which is to say he's not interested in peyote. He's only interested in synthetic masculine. And that's, that's the kind of point of departure. And for me, that's, that's a very interesting kind of, I think it sort of expresses something of his sort of oppositional <laughs> character, uh, you know, to, to want to relate to the, the tradition insofar as it existed in France in that way. Um, but yeah, so I think you're starting out, starting out from that kind of, that focus on laboratory synthesized uh, mescaline rather than peyote, but then, then actually moving it, actually, and then actually moving into a kind of, uh, a kind of mysticism. Mm. Yeah, and, and that's a theme that that we'll pick up on. I think he has a really interesting kind of uh, path that he charts through that. But I think maybe the the first road to go down uh, with Michaud is, is his lens on psychedelics and creativity, as as well as your interpretation of it, because these actually differ a little bit. Uh, you know, Michaud's own experience, um, as we've kind of touched on, it's not exactly what you might expect from a French poet taking psychedelics at first, right? His initial reaction is to say, "quote." mescaline diminishes the imagination it castrates the image it is the enemy of poetry of meditation and above all of mystery yeah. um, he dismisses psychedelic imagery as as again quote a tacky retinal circus which is a wonderful phrase um so i i want to get to how you interpret this and and his larger body of work but let's start with michaud 
how did he view psychedelics and, and, and creativity? Did, did that evolve over time? Was it always a tachyretinal circus or did he kind of hang with that coefficient of adversity to see an evolution in his views? How did, what did he make of it? I think um, that he always regarded, so obviously when, uh, when some people get visuals when they, they take psychedelics and, and other people don't or they don't get as many <laughs> as, as mm-hmm. others, he obviously did. Um, and I think throughout he, he considered the, 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 the visual dimensions or hallucinations as they're, they're sometimes called to be a kind of... Um, uh, yeah, a sort of tacky, uh, a tacky retinal circus. So I don't think I don't think he I don't think he um, at any point uh, disavowed that 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 view of uh, of the visuals. He, I think he started out imagining that psychedelics, but mescaline, would allow him to be more creative. So they would somehow uh, furnish him with ready-made images that he could then reproduce visually or in poetry. Um, so in other words, it would be, they would kind of be able like a sort of, the psychedelic experience would be a bit like a sort of production line. Mm. Uh, and he would, he would then kind of receive these, you know, the, these images and represent them. But in fact, um, he found those images to be extremely disappointing. But what the, the, the value of the experience though, was then that, uh, the, the production line got sort of disassembled. <laughs> so as it were, um, the, the kind of machinery broke down. And in fact, he was, you know, he's, he's, he's the machinery, really. The, the, his mind is the machinery. And, and, and it was the observation, his observation of the, the way in which his mind became uh, kind of deranged. He uses the word in French, um, uh, les dérèglements, which is very reminiscent of, of the, 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 the poet Arthur Rimbaud, uh, the idea of the the dérèglement of the senses. Um, so this, I, I think, I think, I think it was the kind of disturbance in his creative process that the that the psychedelic experience produced. It was by repeatedly practicing with that disturbance, and in a sense, kind of incrementally over, coming to know it, and in a sense, overcome it, and in a sense, be energized by it. That that's where he found the kind of creative value not not in the kind of not as a sort of source of ready-made images i mean literary critics today tend not to think of literature in that in in the way that michaud did implicitly you know as, as a kind of collection of sort of pretty images or, you know that you just you know you admire and you extract um but but um but no so i think i think i think that's i think that's it was it, he didn't find in the psychedelic experience, what he expected to find at all, um, but but he, he through through practicing with it, uh, he found something else uh, that I think was in the end more valuable to him. Yeah, I mean, I really like the way that that you write about this. In that, it wasn't precisely that you know the content of his writing or the images that he described. It was kind of the, the site of the creativity at play. It was kind of in grappling with with the disruption of the ordinary habits. What came through that? You know, you wrote about this. You mentioned a bit as a de-automization of his practices. You know, it's kind of at first unwelcome disruption. And and a lot of prior research. You touch on this in your piece on psychedelics and creativity, which was a, a big theme in the 50s of, of the research that was ongoing, yeah. looked at, as you mentioned, the production of outputs, creative outputs within existing frameworks. And in contrast to that, you wrote 
that Michaud's work suggests that psychedelics do not always enhance creativity simply by increasing output within existing forms and frameworks. They sometimes first dismantle those forms and frameworks. They clear a space in which the subject can reconfigure the terms of representation, remaking the forms, tools, and techniques of representing. And, you know, this has so many fascinating kind of tangents out into how the therapy works, how just pure recreational kind of exploration works. And one of my kind of favorite stories that Michaud recounts is when he accidentally took a huge dose of mescaline bigger than he had intended. Mm. And he tells us that he became, he became letters and lines, right? He became the very medium that he usually works with. He's usually the writer who creates the letters from above, from his little, you know, vantage point. And he has this experience of, of the lines going not only through him, but his entire being confined within them. And reflecting on it afterwards, he writes that to have become a line was a catastrophe, but even more, it was a surprise, a prodigy, right? So you almost see this progression in that very line from catastrophe through the surprise to the kind of prodigal outputs. And I think that that encapsulates so much, right? That, that journey. And it, it reads to me again, like this staying with the adversity rather than getting turned off at first blush gatekeeps these really, these really interesting outcomes. And, and he, I, I think that's a that, that that's a, a great line to to highlight, uh, Oshan, because it, it, you know, and some uh, he he was a stubborn person, Michel. <laughs> you know, he was a person of a very fixed habits, um, but he was also capable of of responding to new information <laughs> in, mm. a, in in a flexible way. And I think that's a great that's a great example of uh, of where he does that. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's take the basis of creativity and let's move towards the question of of politics. Um, one of the first things you do on this subject is you define politics maybe a little differently than folks are used to, right? Instead of the macro political categories like liberal and conservative, which is you know a topic of of research today, people trying to figure out if there's an intrinsic kind of leaning towards psychedelic experience on on any of these dimensions. But you invoke this idea of a molecular or micro politics as more fitting to talk about psychedelics. So, what do you mean by micro politics, and how does that fit in with psychedelics? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So. Um, so the understanding of, of, of the micropolitical, it, it comes out of a, of a tradition of, of, of thinking about politics that's quite well established in, in certain parts of French continental philosophy in particular. One of the philosophers I've done a, a, a lot of work on, uh, Jacques Rancière, is, is, is a kind of significant figure in this and has been caught up in what's sometimes called the... Um, uh, the aesthetic turn in, in political theory. And that doesn't that doesn't mean that the, the, the politics becomes sort of dissolved into to looking at just art and, and, and prettiness and, and, and so on. Nor does it nor does it actually mean looking at kind of the the aesthetic dimensions of political ritual. Um, I don't know, kind of Nazi Nazi insignia or or, or whatever. Um, what it means is it, it goes so it goes back to the idea um, in in ancient Greek philosophy of of aesthesis of a single faculty of of, of sense and uh, perception and judgment. So the idea then is that um, the way that we the way that we see the world, the way that we the way that we perceive uh, uh, the world, is kind of prior to whatever whatever kind of developed macro political position we, we we might have so ways of looking and uh, seeing subjects as political or not 
and that, that could be uh, topics, topics as political or not, or people as, as uh, political or not. They kind of, as it were, precede and inform and to a certain extent determine the, the constituted political positions we might then go on to hold. So in other words, there's a kind of layer, a micro-political layer underneath the macro-political choices and positions that we, we hold to. And, and so I think this is, this is particularly well adapted to, to thinking about the politics of, of, of psychedelics because what psychedelics do, um, whatever, else they, whatever else they may do, but what, one thing they definitely do is they alter modes of, modes of perception, uh, forms of perception, and okay, they, they do it. They do it temporarily. Uh, generally speaking, they do it for the duration of the of the trip. Um, but the, the very fact of going into that altered state of perception and then coming out of it encourages a kind of reflection on the ways in which we see the world. And mm. so that so that reflection on what or ways of seeing that psychedelics tend to produce. Uh, for me, that's that. So that's the kind of micro political import and, and and significance. One thing that that I find really interesting about the idea of micro politics is that, at least for me, you know, it was something of a kind of hidden or concealed possibility for a long time. Right for the first, I don't know, but seventeen years of my life, and and you know, by this point. I'd read some contemplative literature. I'd been around the spiritual circuit. I'd done some meditation. But if you told me that, that my modes of perception could be radically different, that could, they could be altered at a, a really basic level, I might have agreed intellectually, but I had no idea what that actually meant at a visceral level. Uh, and, and then I took a bunch of mushrooms and you know, had the experience of that being so, of what we might call that kind of micro-political rupture in my mode of perception and it made sense in a way that it never could have before at least i don't think so i think that micropolitics in this sense they aren't obvious because it requires a kind of experiential shift that you can reference and those shifts aren't programmed into the routines of say you know american life um, in other cultures there have been things like rites of passage rituals that perform some of that function you know that that tear down those culturally osmosed sense-making machineries that we acquire and give you this radically different uh, vantage point on your own experience and you come back with that knowledge but in, in western culture that seems to be something that we're left to find on our own and i think that this has an interesting link to the more kind of familiar macro political categories right macro politics republican democrat and so on they tend to give the sense of, of politics as working in a top-down fashion right there are those big political parties and organizations and for most ordinary people they feel entirely out of touch right out of reach of our own lives and yet the decisions that are made at those levels kind of come down to act on us nevertheless and this idea of micro politics to me it, it tries to describe the way that those top-down political influences actually rely on bottom-up influence and, and not just through the channel of, of voting, even though that is one, but they also rely on a mass of people who share certain sensibilities, 
right? Certain arrangements of consciousness, certain modes of perception, certain ways of showing up and being in the world, right? That all those kind of individual qualities sustain macro political categories, but also provide channels by which they can be changed, right? I think the 60s show this pretty well, that you get enough disruption in the ways that people choose to live their lives, the values that they hold dear, and that'll ripple up and cause, uh, cause all sorts of disturbances at the macro political layer, you know, but, but then kind of marshalling that disruption towards enduringly beneficial ends or new political institutions that can embed those different values into the kind of enduring crust of society. That's a whole other challenge. But you're doing a lot of work on this idea that psychedelics can feed some democratic energy into the bottom-up channels that sustain those larger kind of macro um, levels. And I, I don't want to jump too far ahead yet. We'll get more specifically into that question. I just wanted to point that out because I love the way that you, that you make that connection. Thank you. But I think to start, I want to look at this idea that you came up with of the redundancy thesis. Right? This idea, is, it's so relevant to the ongoing efforts to devise legal modes of access um, to psychedelics, you know, that kind of go beyond clinical trials, especially now as Oregon's adult use model, it's already underway. Colorado's close behind. California has a bill that looks like it might pass. And, and this idea that you have of the redundancy thesis is a really good way, I think, into that discussion of what we lose if these models remain too tightly controlled, you know, too regulated and constrained in the absence of, of other modes of access as well. So walk us through this. What is the idea of the redundancy thesis? Right. Yeah. So um, the redundancy thesis, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of anxiety now about what, um, well, actually what Nick Langlet's called rightist psychedelia. Um, and uh, he's not the only person who's concerned about it. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of anxiety about uh, the way in which groups like uh, QAnon, um, some members of those groups are kind of interested in psychedelics, this idea that psychedelics might somehow be, be leading to a kind of uh, authoritarian, fascist, right-wing future. So in other words, uh, you know, the, the kind of the long-standing historical association with the left, with the counterculture, is just a kind of accident, a contingency. I, I am also kind of concerned by, by, by rightist psychedelia. I'm not dismissing the concern but what I what I what I mean by the redundancy thesis is that I think that in a, in cultures that are already plural or, or pluralist as as the U.S. today or or other 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 uh, developed nations in, in particular, so not indigenous cultures, let's say, mm -hmm. in, in in cultures that are already plural, if you add psychedelics into the mix. You, you, you produce all sorts of unpredictable uh, effects. So, um, in, in, so in an in an indigenous culture, cultural setting, psychedelics are, are are often used to kind of reinforce uh, cultural uh, norms. There's a there, there, there's a great line about uh, in Peter First, the anthropologist Peter First's uh, work on the on the Huichol. Uh, where he says uh, he reports um, uh, an experience of POT, uh, and the the user says, "Oh, it is as my father's taught me." So you have you have what is essentially kind of a already a, a culture that is it, it, it's, it's not especially kind of plural is already quite homogenous, using psychedelics to in a sense reproduce its its norms uh, and values in a culture that is uh, a pluralist culture. 
Um, if you introduce psychedelics, you, you could expect to see all sorts of different wild and uncontrollable effects. So the redundancy thesis is, is the idea um, that you would need to control all of the aspects of the setting in which the psychedelics were, were being taken so minutely for them to do the work of re- reproducing the culture. Be- 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 so because, because psychedelics amplify features of the, 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 in the setting uh, in a quite remarkable way, that, that actually they'd be redundant. So if you already had complete control over the setting, you wouldn't need psychedelics to, to, to reproduce your, your culture. So in that sense, they would be redundant. They would be redundant. Mm, I see. So in, in many ways, this kind of gives us a little, um, it un- might unwind the anxiety a little bit about the kind of use of, of psychedelics among different groups. But I think it's really interesting if, if we hang with the, the example of psychedelic therapy, for example. On one hand, you know, I don't want to undersell, even in a world where the only way I'll I'll take the US because that's what I know the best. If in the US, the only way anyone could legally do psychedelics was in the kinds of environments that are currently being sculpted by the kind of biomedical therapeutic perspective, um, there could still be a lot of good, right? There's a lot of kind of treatment available here for very prevalent mental illnesses. On the other hand, there is a lot of effort and care going into creating these environments in a way that can stabilize the psychedelic experience into, as, as you've written, a predictable, reliable um, process, right? We want to quantify and optimize and package these experiences in ways that are replicable and that can generalize across people in contexts. Um, that just fits better with how we do risk assessment and across various institutions is how the NIH wants to fund research. And, you know, of course, psychedelics on one hand, they seem almost constitutionally opposed to herding them into predictable tracks. But if you could, if there, if you control the setting to such a degree that you achieve that level of predictability, the way I read this thesis is that something is lost, right? That it almost formalizes kind of the paradox of trying to create regulated environments for, for predictable trips, right? You wrote that uh, for psychedelics to function reliably, that would require their set and setting to already be controlled so comprehensively as to make the political use of psychedelics redundant. If a regime already had control of its subject's mindsets and environment to such an extent, there would simply be no need to call on the amplificatory effects of psychedelics. And so the question through all this I, I want to kind of pose to you is how you think about, maybe not in the context of QAnon and right of psychedelia, but in the context of, let's say, the environments that are being reproduced through the therapeutic paradigm, where we go, you're indoors, uh, generally no windows, you have a blindfold on, you listen to music, there's a therapist or two in the room with you. This serves you know, a, a function that is very important for many people, right? You kind of mitigate a lot of harms, you mitigate you know, a lot of anxiety people have, you're with folks who know the terrain, you're in a, you know, a, a kind of medical environment that if anything goes wrong, they can tend to you. I think it's easy to cling on to the safety that provides and, and kind of latch onto that model, but I'm curious what you think we might lose if the only game in town is that mode of access, I think um, we would be. It would be. We would be experiencing a very narrow uh, portion of the possible spectrum, political spectrum of psychedelic experience. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you know, you're quite right. So the, the the whole issue of how to kind of stabilize psychedelics, you know, it goes right back to 
goes right back to Al Hubbard, you know, creating the, the Hubbard room with the kind of cozy cushions to, mm. uh, you know, to kind of get away from the sort of the, the clinical environment that, that, that seemed to cause so many, uh, so many bad trips early on. Um, but it's, 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 it's fascinating to think about what kinds of political subjects are being crafted through this particular way of uh, deploying psychedelics in this context, um, this medical therapeutic context. I mean, it is... So I approached this partly from through the work of uh, Michel Foucault when he was thinking about uh, the way in which uh, the sort of spiritual exercises of of the, the Jesuits and, and and other forms of kind of early uh, earlier earlier Christian experience, the way in which they shaped modern Western subjects. And I'm just thinking that, that in a way, you know, this experience where we're going to say, well, okay, we're going to cure ourselves by by sitting in this this room, putting on probably putting on eye shades, maybe listening to some music, have someone sit alongside us, but we're we're going to we're going to regulate it to a to, to a high degree. And I mean, you're quite right. There's a, there's a whole secondary market in the kind of regulation and accreditation of, of psychedelic therapists that's, that's really booming um, at the moment. Um, guides, right? yeah. Absolutely. Certification, credentialization. Yeah, all of this, um, all of this is really, is really booming. I think it's really interesting to think about the, the, the type of, of subjectivity that is being forged in these, in these medical therapeutic uh, contexts. And in a way, what we're, what we're doing politically when we are exposing people to this kind of uh, psychedelic therapy in this, in this type of context is uh, reproducing and, and consolidating some of, the, some of the kind of dominant norms of, of our society. So individualization, uh, appropriate distance, uh, the encounter cannot be sexual. Even if, even if the, the 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 person experiencing it would like it to be, uh, which you know strikes me as odd, actually. Um, uh, so, in in, in 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 a way, what what we're doing in that particular way of deploying psychedelics uh, is is consolidating norms that already exist in in, in our society. So, norms of individual identity, detachment from others. A kind of, if you like, a kind of semi or, or, or kind of semi-autistic uh, subjectivity mm. in which people are are juxtaposed one with the other, but kind of don't interact or engage in in some of the more intense ways that actually psychedelics can allow one to engage. Um, so yes, I would say so. I would say it's a very narrow kind of uh, sample of the possible wider spectrum of of political psychedelic experience that we are calling on in the, in that particular type of medical therapeutic use. I really like the way that you critique or, or at least raise questions around the imperative of having a guide in any legal model of using psychedelics, right? There, there are obvious reasons that having a guide provides a lot of value. It helps to manage a lot of the anxiety people might have, uh, especially if it's their first time or if they just want someone who is trained to help them through anything difficult that, that may arise, that's incredibly important to offer. But again, if that's the only game in town, I think you do a nice job of pointing out some of the risks. You write, 
the way in which these major orientations of psychedelic guiding and tripping converge to inform psychedelic experience also shapes political sensibilities, or, and perhaps this is the more usual outcome of current practice, apolitical psychedelic sensibilities. In other words, to a large extent, the way in which we are generally choosing to trip is reflecting and consolidating our society by shaping sensibilities which fit within it, an individualized, risk-averse, securitarian society in which adults require constant guidance by competent authorities and refrain from unduly intimate contact of body and mind, who focus inwards on remedying their problems rather than correcting the course of the world. And I, I want to be clear, I don't think we should ditch the guided therapeutic model. I think it has tremendous value. Um, it's also a great way kind of to Trojan horse things back in. But I think there are real concerns around what we might lose or even the social ramifications of that being the singular focus, so the only way that psychedelics are legitimized. And, you know, one of the examples that I've been thinking a lot about around if not in a therapeutically guided individual session, how else might psychedelics be used in a way that doesn't have these same pitfalls? Uh, you know, the obvious answer is to look at indigenous cultures where you have often you know, communities of practice and social and ceremonial use. But even in our own history, there's a fun example with Tim Leary back from the 50s in Harvard. Um, you know, and for listeners, Tim Leary being the Harvard psychiatrist who eventually became the high priest of LSD for the counterculture. But before he got too wild, uh, he had this idea for a graduate seminar at Harvard where at the beginning of every week on Monday, they would choose a social issue, right? Maybe it was the war, poverty, inequality, civil rights. And then they would all take psychedelics together. They would trip with the intention of considering the issue that they'd selected. And then for the rest of the week, Tuesday through Friday, they would just debrief, right? They would unpack any insights they had. They'd compare and contrast with the existing literature and discourse on the issue. And they'd see if they hit upon any, you know, novel approaches or solutions that seem worthwhile to expand on. And, you know, on its face today, we might struggle to imagine universities being able to allow the administration of psychedelics to students or professors and students tripping together. There's a whole bunch of hurdles here, but it's not inconceivable. And, and I do think that it hints at a really interesting way of harnessing that creative value of psychedelics that we talked about, of, of rupturing the settled habits of mind and thought that naturally kind of concretize over time and opening up the production of knowledge to novel and unusual possibilities, right? You can imagine psychedelics as these agents of making sure that whatever the common sense around a topic is, that it doesn't get too overpowering, right? That psychedelics can kind of help people explore ideas outside the boundaries of common sense, and if we have mechanisms that then help us critically reflect on those ideas, because you know psychedelics can produce spectacularly bad ideas um, and false insights, there's a whole bunch of research on, on false insights in psychedelics that's really interesting nowadays. But, but if you have something like four days of a grad seminar, considering them soberly and placing them kind of in comparison to the existing literature, you might find some really good ones. It's kind of like sifting through all that you know sediment in a river looking for those little spots of gold. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, I, 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 I regret greatly that in, kind of institutionally speaking, that kind of experiment is not possible mm. at the moment, you know, and I, yeah. I, I, I wonder when it will be, because I think actually we, we, we started off by talking about the psychedelic humanities and, and yeah, of course we can, we can reflect together about 
psychedelics in an academic institutional context, but actually that kind of experiment that um, that, that that Tim Leary was doing, um, you know, that in a way, that in a way is the future mm. of the psychedelic humanities. Uh, we just need we need the kind of institutional regulatory frameworks to allow it, or, or it's not going to happen in institutions. It'll happen. It'll happen in autonomous collectives, and it'll happen in other spaces. But I think. You know, it would be a shame if institutions couldn't couldn't embrace psychedelics in 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 that kind of way because that is that is that is actually where some of their most exciting kind of political potential lies. Mm, I'm I'm also really happy that you brought up the example with the Huichol in in Mexico, where they would take peyote, come back, and say, ah, you know, it is exactly as my fathers told me. Just kind of contrasting that with how psychedelic experience in the West has been coded, right? Trying to imagine a young person in the US or the UK going on a big psychedelic trip and afterwards saying, ah, yes, things are exactly as I was told. This all makes sense. Um, you know, the, the image of psychedelics we have is usually antagonistic to the existing structures of society, to the present cultural ecosystem that we're all enmeshed in. And Sometimes I think that makes it tempting to think that psychedelics are inherently or intrinsically antagonistic to existing institutions. But when you do this kind of cross-cultural comparison, you see that isn't the case, right? That whether psychedelic experience kind of affirms or grates against the constructs of, of their world can vary depending on the set and setting of the trip, or in this case of the cultural setting. So one question that I get from this is to wonder what would it take, right? How would the US or the UK or any similar Western society, how would things have to change such that when young people go on big trips and come back, they would feel that sense of affirmation with the culture and society that they return to, that they wouldn't get a sense of discord, but, but of communion, right? What are, what are the necessary shifts so that psychedelic experience harmonizes with American institutions rather than struggles against them? But on the other hand, and this is something that you write about, I don't know if it'll ever be that easy, right? Especially within a society as large and theoretically pluralistic as the US or you know, the shared set of norms and sensibilities that cut across Western society on the whole compared to the Huichol, for example, we don't have as much homogeneity. So this leads us into your ideas on radical democracy at the micro-political level. Should we think about kind of one good path for psychedelics being where the experience can be brought into harmony with existing structures? Or is their value really as a kind of disruptive democratic ferment where, you know, in societies as pluralistic and diverse as ours, the real value is in energizing people to not just go along with, with however their parents told them things are, right? Do we want the harmony or do we want the discord? <laughs> I think as a, a radical Democrat, we want the discord. <laughs> um, we want we want the discord, and we want the the the, the intensity of the of, of the feeling uh, as well. And you know, if we really believe in in radical democracy, we we have to want that across the political mm -hmm. uh, spectrum, which is which is difficult. I mean, for me, one of the um, one of the thinkers that I've been trying to use in the book um, that that I'm sort of in the middle of at the moment on the politics of psychedelics is. Is is Thoreau actually, yeah. and 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 Thoreau's Walden in particular, but thinking about where where he is writing about that the, the mass of uh, humanity who lead lives of quiet desperation, you know. So for for all of those who are kind of 
clinically depressed or who have that kind of documented medical need for the use of psychedelics. You know, there's a, there, there, there are many more people who lead lives which lack, lack a feeling of significance, which lack some of the kind of basic constituents of the exercise of, of political agency and autonomy, uh, fundamental self-belief and, and, and self-trust. For for example, and I and I, and I really do think that psychedelics can help enhance those those kind of proto political dimensions. Um, yet, where that then takes you, the macro level, mm-hmm. uh, socially speaking, is much more is much more problematic to kind of envisage. But I, but I think I mean I do I do I do sincerely believe as a we have to we have to accept that the whole the whole political spectrum will become more uh, enlivened in, in that way. Yeah, I mean the idea of enlivened politics, you know, is I think in many ways antithetical to a lot of people's experience of it today. Right? I was listening to the philosopher Danielle Allen talk about this recently where one of the problems with today's politics is that a ton of people are too busy, you know, with just keeping afloat in their own lives or too exhausted from the sustained stress of insecure economic positions to ever consider doing something like showing up to a town hall meeting and participating in their political institutions where they have a voice. So you wind up with a situation like today where in theory, anyone and everyone can participate. But in practice, what you get, for example, like at that town hall meeting, is it's dominated by one particular band of interests, right? Property owners generally who are already wealthy, who support and voice, you know, their support for policies that protect their interests. And you don't have like the renters showing up uh, who would benefit from more housing and development that would lower rents, for example. And that problem reaches across the board, right? The people with the most resources have the most capacity to engage and shape politics today. So there's that problem. But what I hear you talking about is something almost like an energy parameter, which has a direct correlate in psychedelics, right? Where one thing they do is dial up the entropy of brain activity. Even in in today's political landscape, do you see integrating legal psychedelic access for all as something that might dial up the energy people have to participate in politics? I think I think that's a great way of putting it and of uh, of seeing it. I mean, because you know, what, one can understand non participation in, in, in lots of ways. One can you know, one can say, oh, okay, well, if someone's you know working three jobs and have has children to look after, you know, then of course they have no time to take part in in town hall meetings and so on. But right. I think in a um, I mean, I think in a way that's a kind of those kinds of sociological explanations are, are not are not as persuasive as thinking about okay, but why is the kind of why is there a lack of energy or self belief or a sense of the possibility of making making one's voice heard or making a difference in in a conversation? You know, how, how can we address that? And I think yes, I think energy is 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 is, is a very interesting way of of, of understanding. That yeah, and I think yes, absolutely. So psychedelics uh, used in a way that sort of exceeds the the, the, the medical therapeutic paradigm that, that that quite kind of narrow that narrow kind of uh, segment of the uh, of the of the wide spectrum can indeed address this sort of lack of lack of energy or lack of self belief or can can address that kind of quiet desperation that that, that mm. Thoreau talks about. 
Well, so it's interesting then. Yeah, I actually think I think entropy, entropy is a really nice metaphor. This is something I've been reporting a lot on recently. Entropy being effectively a measure of the disorder or the randomness of neural activity, um, which kind of goes way up in, in psychedelic states. And so this is thought to, you know, it unsettles habits. There's a whole kind of predictive processing thing where the brain kind of grows less confident in prediction in, in its own mm, assumptions yeah. and predictions, which kind of allows a, a wider space to entertain, you know, things within the realm of conscious experience that usually you wouldn't because they were ruled out by all these assumptions you've had. But it's interesting to kind of stretch that same kind of explanation to the social level and to think about psychedelics tuning up, you know, the lever of, of entropy in terms of our I like how you write this about our self-belief, our own kind of participation in society, the energy levels ratcheting up just a little bit, maybe tuning up a little more disorder, a little more kind of democratic ferment, which, which I think you're right. Could We could draw this line then to kind of more um, enlivened participation in our lives, whatever that means. Maybe that's political participation. Maybe it's just how I move through my life every day. Um, these, But it's still, I think, just as important, if not more important, I like that way of thinking about it. Um, Absolutely, and I think you know, and it might, and it might take the form, for example, of of, of saying, well, okay, actually, this town, the, 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 this town hall meeting is, you know, is actually not political at all, <laughs> and I, actually, mm -hmm. I'm not going to go to the town hall meeting because actually, this 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 meeting is just a kind of way of 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 of, of apportioning small amounts of of distributing small amounts of finance or making kind of small decisions, I'm going to do some kind of more radical protest or intervention. So it might, it mm. might, it might involve uh, uh, a kind of disaffection and a disengagement from, from some of those kinds of structures of that, you know, that we think of as political that actually might, might in fact not be political in a more radical sense. Well, this is a lot of, I guess, what we saw in the 50s and 60s, right? The kind of the, the psychedelic experience, I think it was very engaged with the political questions, but it wasn't like all the hippies were going to town hall meetings, you know, it was to turn on, tune in, drop out. The the modes of life, the the ways in which they were living, the the kind of things they did with their time uh, were kind of the the manifestations of this kind of, you know, reinvigorated sense of of politics, I would say. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, obviously, opposition to the Vietnam War was a kind of, you know, a kind of big, ma ma big macro political cause. But in a, in a, in a sense, in a sense, uh, you know, that was just part of a kind of opposition to a society in which people, you know, as as kind of Marcuse um, theorized, you know, people were were being kind of prepared to be to be used for their their, their, their kind of economic value. Um, so it was a rejection of that whole kind of way of, of living through through a form of kind of radical inactivity in a way, a kind of uh, aesthetic detachment from from all of those forms of uh, purposive activity. Yeah. Do you think it's really interesting that you're thinking with Thoreau here? Uh, do you think Thoreau would have approved of the use of psychedelics? Did he? I don't know if, if, he, <laughs> if I've ever read any of this on him. That's That's a really fascinating question. I think... I mean, he does. He does allude actually at one point in in Walden to uh, indigenous to Native American cultures to the practice of uh, every spring of kind of uh, sweeping out uh, the huts and kind of burning everything and taking what he calls medicine. So medicine there would be would be peyote. So there is a kind of allusion to that that practice, and he seems very approving of that kind of periodic kind of communal uh, cleansing. 
so, mm. so yes, I think I think <laughs> uh, on, on the basis of that very small kind of textual moment, I'd say yes, he'd be a he'd be an enthusiast. I mean, what the books where the book the, the book that I'm halfway through is kind of uh, tending is is towards a kind of account which will which will look at the idea of um, rebirth or re- re- renaissance as as Thoreau imagines it in in Walden as something that we might use psychedelics to to produce or inform or or, or enable. Mm. Well this is something we see a lot this is you know this this notion of of rebirth is a very common kind of thematic pair with psychedelic experience you know given what I think is kind of the blunt language of ego death but more broadly this this notion of kind of a uh, progressive or kind of variable dissolutions of, of what we experience as our own selves. Kind of the more you change this this uh, phenomenon, this experience, whatever you want to call it, this kind of integrated experience of I, uh, the, the notion of rebirth becomes a very kind of visceral thing that folks can play with in these contexts. It, it seems pretty clearly a very fitting way to think about it, doesn't it? I think so. And the idea of ret- you know the, of, of the brain being returned uh, to a much more plastic sort of learning state. Um, mm. Yeah, so a kind of uh, a kind of rebirth of the of the brain or the brain's kind of capacity for uh, for freer play. Yeah, no, these are these are all absolutely kind of important dimensions as you as you're suggesting in you know in the kind of uh, neuroscientific literature. And I, I mean, I think what's interesting is to think then about what what follows from that socially and and, and politically. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is the, this is the question I keep thinking about is is so much of what I think defined. Um, the kind of uh, American first go around with psychedelics or the Western world at large was the ways in which it really began to bleed out into social and political life. And I think during the the, the psychedelic renaissance here in the Western biomedical world, uh, we haven't seen yet that yet because whatever renaissance there has been, it has all occurred within like clinically controlled trials, um, you know, envir- environments that are very heavily regulated and there's still the underground and there's still some decriminalization efforts, but by and large. And so the question I'm really interested in is over the next decade or two, and I think this is what you're, you're charting out of it, is as psychedelics kind of uh, go beyond only being, you know, accessible in these clinical models, what is that kind of new kind of uh, collision with social and political life going to look like? Because I, I don't imagine it's going to be inconsequential, um, but I don't know what direction that'll take. How do, you, how do you think about kind of the next decade or two to come as psychedelics begin? I guess this is the whole notion of the psychedelic humanities, right? But, but how do you see this collision taking place? It's, it, it's very difficult to know, actually, what's going to, to happen uh, when if you like psychedelics become mainstream um so so at the moment because of the war on drugs because of because of prohibition we have only the examples really of people taking psychedelics at kind of extremes of society if you like because the, the vast majority of people if they're told by the medical establishment if they're told by the police if they're told by politicians you know that these substances are you know dangerous they'll make you jump out of windows and and you know all of this stuff that you know was pumped into the society by you know by nixon and his his acolytes um when when they sort of set up the war on drugs most most people you know they're they're not gonna they're not gonna then say oh yeah well maybe i'll try them anyway (laughs) so we we, (laughs) so what we have so what we have at the moment is we have a situation where you know you've got you've got small numbers of people who've been involved in clinical trials you've got then you've got people who who use them outside of uh legal frameworks um 
or, or you know, or who are privileged enough to exist to live in one of the very few places in which one one can use them legally. Mm-hmm. So we, we don't really have a kind of we don't have a kind of evidence base, a current evidence base anyway, um, of what, what what will happen when um, when the mainstream really really embraces psychedelics, as I think as I think they will um, over the next ten or ten or twenty years. So. It, in a way, it's a it's it's a very exciting moment to be thinking about about those sorts of implications. I absolutely agree, and one of the potential implications that I'm really excited and curious about is how more widespread psychedelic experience could reinvigorate conversations around you know metaphysics and ontology and our shared understanding of of just what sort of universe it is that we're floating in here. Because already, you know, without psychedelics, there's been this move in some corners of philosophy to devise a scientifically informed understanding of the cosmos, but that revives a sense of enchantment or mystery or even, you know, unknown and potentially unknowable aspects of the world. And you write about how Michaud is kind of one guide through this ongoing effort. You say that rather than the sobering prospect of a merely natural philosophy of psychedelics, Michaud's work suggests that a more promising paradigm, which better captures the force of psychedelic experience, might be mystical naturalism. And I I like that phrase a lot. It reminds me of one from the philosopher uh, and something of a mystic Simone Weil, who, who spoke of enchanted materialism, which I think has a similar flavor, right? That scientific methodology can and should help us come to know the world in a really empirical, testable way, but that doing so doesn't collapse or dispel this sense of mystery and unknowability and, and all that remains hidden from us, even, you know, for example, in something like the structure of matter itself. So I'm curious how you read Michaud here. How does he guide us through this idea of mystical naturalism? And how does that differ from a kind of plain and simple, reductive, you know, scientific understanding of psychedelics? I see it as a kind of intermediate position between a kind of sort of a kind of hard uh, scientific naturalism, if you like, uh, on the one hand, and on, on, on the other, at the other extreme position, which says, okay, well, Psychedelics, they 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 prove that uh, panpsychism is correct, and that um, mm. you know that the universe is inhabited by only by kind of minded minded entities of various kinds. Now, with, with all due respect to to those who those who believe that second position, I think it's I think it's quite outlandish actually. Um, um, but I think we and I think it's quite a distraction from thinking about the the political and social ramifications of uh, of psychedelics so i think i think Michaud's middle course uh is the is is a very attractive kind of compromise between those those those, those two extremes which enables us to then move on and think about what i think are the more interesting questions around around politics and society so not not to get you know not to get caught up in these you know these uh, for me i think these absurd discussions you know are dmt entities real or you know how are we going to map uh psychedelic inner space you know these i think these discussions are just distractions from from thinking about thinking about what what happens politically and socially when when we see more and more people taking taking psychedelics 
So what do you see, uh, putting a pin on the moment, because I think I, I have the same sensibility as you is that my interest leans in the political and social ramifications, but I'm curious. So then for Michaud, I guess my question would be, what is the mystical aspect of his, like what separates his view from a very scientific reading of, because he was, as you mentioned, he would he would only take kind of lab grade, uh, synthet- you know, synthetically produced mescaline. Um, he was not interested in indigenous cultures and these kinds of things. So it, it seems to me possible to read him pretty scientifically. So what what kind of elevates him or what were the kind of ideas maybe that, that move beyond that for him? Well, there's this, you know, there's this phrase which uh, occurs in the second book in the series, uh, L'Infini Turbulent, um, where he says, and it's in block capitals, you know, to, uh, to, to, to indicate uh, uh, the emphasis he places on it. I have seen the thousands of gods. Oh, I love that line. Yeah. Um, so, and, 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 and this is not, you know, this is, uh, this is, this is a report of mystical experience of a kind of yeah. uh, a religious, religious, mystical revelation. To, to me, the, one of the most interesting commentaries on that is by the literary critic Maurice Blanchot, who says well, it's, it's interesting, this comment, you know, of Michaud's. He says he's seen the thousands of gods, but, you know, even if we like Michaud and we're, you know, we're ad- ad- admiring readers of his work, we don't stop what we're doing and, and you know, gather around and say, <laughs> wow, you know, he's seen the thousands of gods, you know, what, what follows from this? We just mm-hmm. take it, we, we take it as a kind of personal experience of, of a kind of revelation, but we don't uh, we don't cash it out into metaphysical or ontological uh, consequences. Yeah, I mean, the, the kind of classic line is that talking about your psychedelic experiences is very much like talking about your dreams. Yes. You know, they carry this energy and this fascination to you and to generally nobody else. Ever. <laughs> and uh, but it's interesting, right? Because on one hand, that can how do we respond to that fact? Right? Do we then? simply discard these experiences as we learn that other folks are not interested in them. And and especially when these experiences have to do with this kind of revelatory aspect, do we hold out kind of space that that this is nevertheless important and worthwhile? And kind of how do we balance that with, for example, as we move to political implications? This is something that I think Michaud does well, and, and I think a lot of my favorite uh, writers on psychedelics today do, is navigating this line between, as you say, not getting too caught up in the experiences themselves. And while I think it's a, it's an extremely fun thing to do, it's a nice hobby. And I also, I also think it's an important line of research to ask all the questions we can, like, all right, there are entities, what's going on here. Um, but, but the, the, the way that you can balance the fascination that arise with this kind of revelatory aspect with the kind of, um, all right, we have work to do. We have politics that need some work. We still have all kinds of poverty. We have all these mental, and you know, so on and so forth. Navigating that balance, I think, is really tricky. And I'm also very excited to see how we continue to do that as these kind of experiences um, potentially you know, reach w- wider uh, scales or ratios of the population. We'll see. You know, it's a tough balance. It is. And I mean, I think... I mean, for me, it's the question. The questions around, you know, the the, the reality or otherwise of of, of you know DMT entities or, 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 or whatever. They're not. They're, I think they are a bit of a distraction, but I, I don't think they're they're futile. Um, mm. I, but what I do think is that um, you know the, the the way through this is not to say to people, you know, after they've had their trip or their kind of supervised medical experience of psychedelics, is not to say, oh yes, well, you know, there's a precedent in the history of philosophy for, for what you what you've experienced, so it's okay. I think that's quite a patronizing. Actually, it's quite a patronizing um, response. Yeah. I think actually, 
actually a bit, uh, rather as for Freud, you know, who obviously found other people's dreams endlessly fascinating, is to say, okay, this is, you know, this is the mind, this is, this is the, these are the uncharted, you know, antipodes, uh, the territories of the mind that we just don't experience, we don't know about. We, we have to start thinking about them and encountering them. But we, we mustn't allow ourselves to kind of spin off into some kind of, you know, um, regressive kind of neo-indigenous kind of folklore, which I think that there's a real, there's a kind of real danger of that in a lot of the discussions in, in, in the psychedelic community. Having traversed uh, a lot of terrain so far, what I, I want to return to an idea kind of from a higher level, looking at this kind of space beyond the therapeutic role of, of psychedelics, you know, the, the question being, if they are not best understood, you know, merely as new therapeutic drugs, uh, what are they and how do we think about them? And to, to kind of approach this question, um, you drew on the, on the German philosopher, Peter Sloterdijk, who, who I love, and, you know, he describes psychedelics as anthropotechnics, which I found a really handy concept. So I wanted to ask you if you could unpack that, you know, what that means and, and how that maybe departs or expands on the therapeutic vision. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think, I think, so the idea of anthropotechnics in, in, in Sloterdijk, so an anthropotechnics is simply a, a technique of, of human self-enhancement. Um, and so for, for Sloterdijk, meditation would be, would be a, an example of uh, anthropotechnics. Going to the gym would be an example of anthropotechnics actually for, for Sloterdijk, uh, or the, the, you know, the beauty salon as well. Uh, he's quite kind of, uh, he's quite kind of liberal or Catholic, if you like, in his, um, <laughs> Uh, in his understanding of of, of what self enhancing anthropotechnics are, but but for me, um, the, the usefulness of the concept or that that way of seeing psychedelics is that you can then say, okay, well, the the, the drug, the substance is okay. That is uh, one element in the anthropotechnical ensemble, which you then associate with or you combine with other elements so those other elements would include your your set your mindset the the setting you're in but they might also include a set of political problems of the type that you were you were referring to in 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 tim leary's um classes um so that way so so that way of seeing psychedelics as, as as anthropotechnics ways of improving improving on the human actually enhancing what it means to be to be human um but also as necessarily combined with other practices, other cultural objects, including books and works of works of literature um, as well. You know, because for you know for Sloterdijk in the the, the history, as you, as you, I'm sure you know, in the the humanities uh, as as a kind of discipline, going back to the 19th century, has to do with uh, kind of the, the civilization, the education, the civilizing education of of the human species through books and books are the anthropotechnical objects par excellence of the, of the humanities in their kind of classical form. And so then thinking about the psychedelic humanities, obviously psychedelics are going to be involved um, as anthropotechnics, but, you know, they're not only going to be psychedelics. It's going to be psychedelics with with other anthropotechnical elements so I, I, there was there was someone you pointed to who thought that psychedelics would just full-on replace books right it might have been leary yeah no leary did there's a huge corpus of writings and one can one, one can pick and choose within leary no, he said no you students will come home from 
uh, university and their parents, instead of asking them, uh, what books have you read? They'll ask you which, ask the, their, their children, which drugs have you taken? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I think it was a, you know, it was a kind of quip actually, but yeah. Yeah. But yeah no, he did. He did say that. Yeah. Wow. Well, I think that's, for me, that's a really nice place to kind of draw things down. But I, I do wonder before we do that, you know, for you, was anything else on this terrain lingering on your mind? Anything you wanted to, to throw into the mix? I am trying to think about mysticism. <laughs> oh boy, this is good. <laughs> I'm trying to think about mysticism at the moment. Um, so this is, um, I'm sort of halfway through this book and I'm thinking at the moment about um, the type of mysticism, particularly of Christi Christian mysticism, that Huxley takes up in uh, The Doors of Perception and then in a way then kind of informs the psychedelic humanities. And it seems to me is a very kind of cerebral type of mysticism. And I'm trying to think of other ways of thinking about the Christian mystical tradition and, and other, other and other mystical traditions as well. Um, so I'm using a lot of the work of um, Julia Kristeva. Uh, she has a wonderful book on uh, St. Teresa, Teresa of Avila, entitled Thérèse Mon Amour. So I'm, at the moment, I'm trying to kind of, I'm trying to use that. So, so Teresa of Avila's... Um, form of mysticism is much more kind of embodied and sensual and uh and i think actually that can help to offset some of the kind of mentalistic neurological cerebral skew that um that that psychedelics uh, have at, at the moment in the way that we're thinking about them so that's 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 I'll, I'll i'll just throw that in i don't really have any conclusions but that's what i'm trying to think about at the moment well, that, so that's really interesting. Let me ask you this then. This will be fun. There's, there's um, a perspective emerging that a lot of folks around me are increasingly kind of excited by, and I think for good reason, but I also think it's early enough that there hasn't been a great critique yet, and I think we need one. So let me try to articulate this perspective uh, on, it's a very kind of scientifically grounded explanation of what, maybe not exactly what mysticism is, but what spiritual experience is and what's going on in these like really... Um, you know, maybe not always high dose, but these really kind of expansive experiences folks are having. Mm. And the explanation goes something like this. It is, <clears throat> you know, you kind of begin with the context of, predict of predictive processing. So the human mind is a prediction machine that has an internally generated model of the world, which aids its kind of survival efforts. Um, we have two streams of information top down from the brain, which are the, the the generated predictions and bottom up, which is raw sense data. And generally what we're experiencing is the brain's uh, model, unless there's a prediction error, so on and so forth. So the, the general idea is that this, this predictive mind is built on a hierarchy of priors of assumptions. And these assumptions, as I mentioned before, kind of give shape to what, what can even enter into the realm of conscious experience. And so one of the leading, you know, explanations of kind of what's going on in the psychology but off, off the work of like Robin Carhart Harris, it's the rebus model, the notion that the brain downweights its precision. It, it grows less confident in those predictions, widens the space of experience, it admits experiences that are usually excluded. Um, and and this kind of, you know, this this has a bit of explanatory power. Now, in terms of what spiritual experiences or what mystical experiences, the story goes something like, you know, as you unravel the kind of predictive underpinnings of the mind so thoroughly 
that the mind is no longer engaging in predictions at all. You reach something, you can call it the ground of awareness, you can call it pure consciousness. You know, this is a lot of literature in the meditation space on this. And that effectively what spiritual experience is, is just what consciousness is like when you have switched off the kind of predictive processes, <clears throat> right? So this is a very mechanistic description of what's going on. What I'm curious, and, and then, you know, then there's the kind of inverse process of from the ground of awareness, from pure experience, you then have the predictive mind slowly reconstitute itself. And as you bear witness to that process, you have this agency to kind of fiddle with those priors and change them around a little bit. So maybe you had this kind of maladaptive habit because someone made fun of you when you were young and, and that's prevented you from sharing your opinion. And now you can realize that and, and you know, unravel its hold on your ordinary psychology a little bit, things like this. The, the, the question I want to ask is, is there a wider reading of mysticism as, as it pertains to psychedelic experience that you can draw on that, that kind of goes beyond just saying, you know, the mind has deconstructed itself and that, that kind of admits unusual um, experience, if that makes any sense. It, it does, absolutely. Um, but, you know, um, the mind is all very well, but what about the body? <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, what about the body? What about embodied mysticism? Uh, and so I'm thinking of, of, of you know, St. Teresa having her mystical visions, uh, these convulsions, these kind of, these sort of very corporeal, orgasmic, ecstatic um, experiences. And that is a very different kind of, that's a very different kind of experience from that, 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 that sort of cerebral, uh, brain focused mm -hmm. account. Um, I mean, I think it's a very, I think, I think that model is a very compelling account of what, you know, of what goes on in, in, in psychedelic experiences in the brain. But mm. it is interesting, isn't it, that in, you know, in the medical therapeutic context, you know, we are, Having, people are static, pretty much static, and reclining uh, generally. The body is not in contemporary in contemporary psycho psychotherapeutic use of psychedelics. We're not engaging uh, the whole body in the experience. Quite, quite, quite the contrary. So I think, I mean, obviously there was you know pre-prohibition therapeutic use. There, there was, there was, there was that kind of um, experimentation. Some of it really quite. Quite radical and it's quite disturbing by some uh, by 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 some lights. But I so so I'm thinking, yeah, um, yeah. So what 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 happens when when the kind of the body, the the sensing uh, and sexual body is is involved in in that kind of mystical experience when it's not just a cerebral, a static thing? Mm. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's a wonderful place to kind of direct how, how to. Um, how to respond and how to think about building on this idea. Cause I, I, you know, I feel the same way. I think at its core, it's a very compelling account. It makes a lot of sense. Um, but this notion of kind of encountering, you know, embodied uh, cognition, embodied experience could help expand it. Well, wow. Um, Oliver, thank you so much. This was wonderful. And if, if folks, myself included, I'm asking this for me, but maybe some listeners will feel the same. If folks want to engage with this kind of emerging field of the psychedelic humanities, are there any particular books or organizations or resources? Where would you point folks to kind of get involved and, and kind of get their bearings in that? Uh, I mean, uh, the, so the new laboratory for the psychedelic humanities at, at the new school is a, would be a great place to, to start. They are, running, they are running some really exciting series of events, uh, both in-person events and, and online. Mm. So that would be a great place to, to start, I think. 
That's wonderful because it's very close to me. <laughs> That's convenient. <laughs> Great. Well, hey, listen, thank you so much. This has been uh, really wonderful. Uh, it, was, it was a pleasure to, to have the opportunity to engage with your work. And I think it was a really great basis uh, to, to begin thinking about and watch what happens next. I think it's going to be exciting, an exciting decade or two, to say the least. Thank you so much, Oshan, for your, for your, for your great questions and for, for our conversation today. All right. If you made it this far, I hope you enjoyed. You can find links to Oliver's work, resources we mentioned, or a transcript of the conversation on the episode page, which you'll find at musingmind.org slash podcast and clicking on Oliver Davis. As always, you can reach me at oshanjaro at gmail.com if you have comments, ideas for someone else I should have on the show. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider sharing it on social media, um, even though that's something of a crumbling hellscape these days. And that's it. Hope everyone is well, and I'll talk to you next time.